morning. Um, this week is Go for the Gold. And as we see the end product coming together, it's, it's very exciting for me to, to see uh, so many uh, fingerprints from this, this body of Christ here uh, coming together on Go for the Gold. Uh, it's been quite the experiment. Uh, I think this labor of love has has uh, uh, is going to turn out great thanks to, to so many people who have invested in it. There's been a lot of creative thinking. There's been a lot of sweat. There's been tears. There's even been a little bit of blood uh, that's been shed over that. If you don't get that joke, I uh, I hit my head with a post driver last week, and I've got six staples running up my, my scalp. It wasn't as bad as it sounds. It was just as dorky as it sounds. Uh, so... But I, I'm excited, and, and you can probably tell, and maybe you know, uh, that this theme is based on the Olympics, and, uh, you know, sometimes you've got to state the obvious, um, but the, the reason we picked the Olympics is because I, it has wonderful application in, in the Bible, uh, but the Olympics is also this year, and it starts July 27th, and I love the Olympics. I don't know about you, but, but I have loved the Olympics as a kid, and it's, it's kind of, I was thinking about the Olympics, and, and it was amazing to me how many things I could remember from each year of my life that, that the Olympics took place. I was five, year old, five years old in the 76 Olympics. I didn't watch them, or I don't remember watching them, but I remember Bruce Jenner on my Wheaties box before he was a Kardashian. Um, he, was, he was on my Wheaties box, and I remember my sister wanting to be uh, Nadia Comaneci. I don't even know if you say that right. But, but she was a Romanian gymnast who scored a perfect 10, and just people were in love with her. And, and in 1980, I remember the, the U.S. hockey team uh, beating, beating Russia in the, 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 to advance to the gold medal game in, in such an exciting game. And I remember in 1984, Carl Lewis. Uh, I loved Carl Lewis. He was going for four golds. And I remember in 88, I was 17, I had a crush on Mary Lou Retton, you know, the, the, the gymnast. And in 92, the Dream Team put together for the first time with NBA players. And interestingly enough, um, uh, you know, 20 years ago that happened, a coworker of mine was just talking about the Dream Team this week and some stories surrounding that. And uh, in 96, Carrie Strug and her one-legged vault to win the, the gold for the, the gymnastics team. And I could go on and on. Uh, my favorite story, I think, is in 2000, though. Uh, Rulon Gardner, farm boy from Wyoming, uh, goofy-looking guy. Uh, he, uh, big, big farm boy, uh, he took on this guy named Alexander Karolin. I don't know if you say that right, he's from Russia. And this guy hadn't lost in 13 years. And, and he took him on in wrestling and he won. And I just was thought, that's just awesome. I love those stories. And I'm sure you have your own memories as well. Unless, of course, you hate the Olympics. And if you do, it's going to be a long morning for you. Um, <laughs> But that's, uh, that's how it goes sometimes. But as you know, or you probably know, the Olympics has a history that traces back to Jesus' day. And, and the Apostle Paul was really fond of borrowing imagery from athletic events, racing and fighting. Um, and, and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he penned the words that make up the theme verse uh, for our, uh, our, our go for the gold. And so I want to read uh, the, the section from which that's found from 1 Corinthians 9 for you this morning. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. However, they do it to receive a crown that will fade away. But we, a crown that will never fade away. Therefore, I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself 
will not be disqualified. I'm sure, as you read that, that, that you had a mental image of the Olympics or something similar. As soon as they say uh, runners in a stadium, uh, that immediately conjures up images like Usain Bolt or Mary Decker or Paul Bannister or maybe even Jesse Owens. Uh, you know, the 100-meter dash comes to mind. It's 10 seconds of just fast people running. And, and it amazes me in that 10 seconds how much distance can be created or how close it can be. It's, it's, it's exciting. And then, you know, there's, the, uh, there's the, the, the jog around the stadium, the victory lap, and then there's the awards podium where uh, they get the gold and the anthem plays and they cry or they laugh or they bring the second, third place up and they all hug and smile for the pictures. And, and so there's that whole imagery. Just that one mention can bring out all these things, all these thoughts. And in Paul's day, when he mentions that they run for the, for the crown or, or run for the prize, they're talking about a wreath. Uh, they're running for leaves, essentially. Uh, so when it says a, a crown that will fade away, that it literally lasted only a few weeks uh, or maybe a few months at best. Um, and then as Paul's talking, he shifts to boxing. I don't, I don't beat the air aimlessly. And so that brings up all kinds of imagery as well and all kinds of thoughts. Um, but we have this imagery, and, and we have to think about why why Paul uses that imagery, but it also leads us to realize Paul uses that imagery elsewhere. In Acts 20, 24, he's talking to the Ephesian elders. It's the last time Paul's ever going to see the Ephesian elders, and he knows it, and he's saying goodbye to them, and the Bible says they're weeping and they're crying, and Paul says, I've finished my course. In in 2 Timothy, it's the same kind of scenario. 2 Timothy is one of the last books we have that Paul wrote, and he knows that that he's going uh, going to be dying soon, and he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. In Philippians, when he's encouraging the Philippians to keep going, he says, press on toward the prize. Not like you've already got it, but like it still needed to be obtained. And he even uses it in a reverse way in Galatians, where he, he's writing the Galatians. There's issues. They've let mistruth be taught to them and brought into the church. And he said, you were running so well. What hindered you? What tripped you up? So Paul is fond of this imagery of athletes and of races and competition, I have to ask myself, why? Why? Why is this such a good illustration for us? And I think it's rooted in their motivation. These athletes are on a quest to be the best of their sport. They want to do more than succeed. They want to excel to the point that they're the best. They, they want to work for it, and they, they, they view it as, as an honor. They don't have to. They get to. They recognize it as one of the greatest honors and, and the opportunities in the world to compete. And so they devote uber amounts of energy to, to this one thing. They're, they're dedicated wholeheartedly to this one task. And, you know, the training regimen of Olympic athletes is, is legendary. If you've ever just you know, heard of it, I remember uh, reading The Breakfast of an Olympic weightlifter once. And, and it's more food, and I, I eat a lot. It's more food than I eat in a couple days. Just their breakfast. Um, and, and that's part of their training, but, but also part of the workout. You know, if, if uh, Olympic athletes often exert more energy and burn more calories than most of us do in, in a week and, and possibly even a month in some of our cases, they're literally the most physically fit human beings in the world, except maybe the archers. They've got fit arms. But other than that, it's no offense to you bow hunters out there. I'm just saying, it's arms. Um, sorry. <laughs> uh, 
But they're, they're full of self-discipline. They're full of self-control uh, from what they eat to what they wear to how they work out to their technique. They're, there's really a science behind it. They're dedicated to every last detail. And why do they do this? Because they want to win. They want the gold. They want the glory. They want the adoration. They want to be the best. They want to be on top. And so as I think about this imagery, then I think, well, you know, some of this motivation kind of moves into areas we don't necessarily like. And it's a little too self-serving uh, for the Christ follower to adopt in their life. And then after, you know, it's an illustration. Paul is not pointing their motivation for us. Paul is pointing to their dedication. And so we want to figure out what Paul is talking about in the verses we ran when we talk about um, uh, running the race and, and competing for the prize. We have to, to back up a little bit. Let's get a little context. Let's see what Paul said before uh, those verses. Paul is talking about spreading the gospel. And he says, although I am a free man and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. It gets a little crazy in there in the wording. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, not being without God's law, but within Christ's law, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that I may by every possible means save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel, so I may become a partner in its benefits. The wording got a little crazy in there. But basically Paul said this, uh, to win slaves, I become like a slave. To win those under the law, I became like one under the law, even though I'm not. To win those without the law, I became like one without the law, uh, even though Christ's law guides me. To, become, to win the Jews, I became like a Jew. To win the weak, I became like the weak. And then that pinnacle statement at the end, I have become all things to all people so that I may by every means possible save some. And he says, I do all this because of the gospel. You see, Paul uses athletes as an example because of their relentless effort in pursuing their goal. And their goal was to share, or, or and his goal was to share the gospel. The athlete's goal is to win the gold, to win the prize. Their focus and their work is unmatched. And that's what makes the Olympics so special. That's why every four years when the Olympics come on, so many of us tune in to watch because these coaches and athletes are so dedicated and persevere through so much, through trials, through defeats, through injuries, through mental uh, anguish. Uh, they're, they're pushed the, the limits mentally in their training for what is often just one moment. And as we watch, sometimes we celebrate the victory with them and sometimes we agonize in the defeat with them. You know, if I mentioned Mary Decker, you might think of in 84 when she fell on the track, when she was supposed to be the, the, the hands-down winner. Or you might think of Dan Jansen and all the years that he persevered as an, an ice, uh, the, the speed skater. That's speed skating, if you didn't know. As, as a speed skater, uh, persevering through his, I think it was his sister's death. And then uh, the defeats that he wasn't supposed to get. And it took him years, like three Olympics, to get the gold. And we agonize with those people. Um, Paul is claiming that he puts that same Olympic effort uh, into the spread of the gospel. And it's not just claiming it for him. He's putting that effort on us as well. Let's go back to verse 25b when he says, However, they do it to receive a crown that will fade away, but we a crown that will never fade away. 
The difference is Olympic athletes do it until they can't do it anymore. And then they retire and they get endorsement deals and speaking deals. Or they retire and become a mom. Christians do it for a crown that will never fade away. And it's something that we do our our entire life. You see, we as believers, we're expected to work hard at spreading the gospel. Let that sink in for a moment. You might even say, whoa, whoa, back up a little bit because, you know, you might have a real issue with the word work. It's kind of a loaded word in Christian circles. You know, what do we do with the word work? Because there, there are a, a couple of errant extremes that have made their way into the church when we, regarding work, and they're false. And so I want to touch on them here so we're just clear in communicating this truth. First of all, some people misunderstand the gospel and believe it is about how good they are. And so they work and they work and they work to prove their goodness, to earn God's favor, and to show I'm good enough. All right? And, and they believe that works is, is, that the works is how they earn their salvation. Now, some people would actually say that out loud. Some people would say that's wrong, but then live it. Okay? Some people would say, I don't agree with that, but their life is how they live it. They, they suffer from, from guilt at how Jesus died for their sin. And rather than accepting his forgiveness, they, they say, that's not good enough for me. I'm going to work and prove that I'm good enough. So, so that's, that's one extreme in the church. And, and it's, it's easily debunked in Scripture. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 uh, is going to actually take care of both of our myths. But, but 8 and 9 say, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. So right away, the one who says that works earns our salvation whether they say it with their mouth or with their life. Right away, we see that that is something that's, that's wrong. And not only is it wrong, uh, I need to say here, if, if you hold that view, whether it's what you say or whether it's what you live, you are offensive to God. And those are strong words, but, but, but listen, let's, let's carry out the logic. That view says that Jesus' death on the cross is not enough. It's not enough. That, that God's grace is not enough to save you. That the righteousness of Christ that He has offered you to put on is not enough because you have to own, add your own goodness. You're saying, you know, Jesus, you were, you were great, but I've got to add my own goodness to this for this deal to really make sense. How offensive is that? And so if that's something that, that you've struggled with, uh, that's something that, that, that you recognize you live, that's something you need to repent of. That's something that you need to put away because it's, it's simply wrong. We're not called to work hard for the gospel to earn our salvation. All right? And that is a line that we have to draw and that we have to make sure that, that it's clear. Because if it's not clear and someone sets off in that direction, that is a direction that leads to destruction and only builds up pride. Now, the other Aaron extreme is those who say works have nothing to do with salvation. And they use that as an excuse to do nothing. All right. Uh, this, too, is exposed in Ephesians 2, and, and, and we'll just touch on it briefly. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. I mean, it's right there in context. You're saved by grace, and then a couple verses later it says you're created to do good works in Christ Jesus. All right. So, so it's, it's very simple. We are saved by grace, but we are created to, for the purpose of good works. In uh, college Sunday school, we're studying a book called, or reading through a book called Radical Together. That's by David Platt. And he says it this way, The same gospel that saves us from work also saves us to work. 
All right? I hope you see the difference. We're not required to work for our salvation, but as a result of, of a regeneration of that new creation of being made new, we now, uh, we now desire to work spreading the gospel. It's a, a result of the joy that's now in our lives because Christ has saved us and he's forgiven us. And we understand that it's something that we spread and that we share because there are others who need to hear the same good news that they can be forgiven and that they too can walk in a relationship with Christ and have purpose in their lives. But we live in a society that worships comfort. And some of that has seeped into American church theology. Comfort's not wrong, but it makes a terrible God. And Americans as a whole seek to insulate ourselves from discomfort. Francis Chan has a quote from the book Forgotten God. It says, it's true that God may have called you to be exactly where you are. You know, God's not calling us all to leave America and go be missionaries and, 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 and rough it wherever that is. But it's absolutely vital to grasp that he didn't call you there so you could settle in and live your life in comfort and superficial peace. We are called to work for the gospel. You know, throughout the New Testament, Paul uses really strong words to convey, uh, or not just Paul, but throughout the New Testament, strong words are used to convey uh, effort in our uh, in our our response to the gospel and, and in sharing. Listen to some of them. When Paul is talking to Timothy uh, about what he's doing, he says, "Train yourself to be godly." Okay, training. It says that's why we labor and strive, because we put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people, and especially those who believe. He tells them later to be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them. That's W-H-O-L-L-Y. All of you, give yourself all of it to doing it. Uh, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. That word persevere, you know, that's a, that's a rough word. That implies it's hard, and you keep going, okay? Uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about entering into God's rest, and it always makes me laugh that he says, strive to enter that rest. You know, really make that effort. Jesus said in Luke thirteen twenty four, strive to enter through the narrow door. Paul uses the word labor to describe working for the gospel in First and Second Corinthians, in Galatians, in Philippians, in First Second Thessalonians, and we already read in First, First Timothy. And Colossians one twenty eight. In 29, Paul says this, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all, and I love how he says this, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And that that says it all there. We're, We're saved from work to work, and we struggle with his energy energy. The Spirit is provided for us to, to, to serve and glorify Christ, and we are saved to serve. And that's the point of the athlete illustration. You've been given a platform on the greatest stage in human history. It's not a platform where you receive a gold medal. It's the platform of eternity where you have the opportunity to share within your realm of influence, your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family, the greatest victory that was ever gained And that is Christ, crucified on the cross and raised again. Victory over death, victory over sin, and we have been given the honor of doing that. David Platt in his book goes on to say, Because we believe the gospel, sacrificial love is not just our duty, but our delight. You see, there's a shift. There's a difference when you 
work hard because you have to and you work hard because you want to. There's a difference when we say this is worth all the effort and this is worth all my time and all my resources. The question then that's left with us is, are you willing? Are you willing to pay the price to do something that affects eternity or possibly affects eternity? Are you willing to look at your life and set things before Christ and say, what do you want in my life and what do you want to pair away so that I can serve you more fully? Are you willing to say, I trust you with everything? My job, how my family lives, my home, my, my vacations, whatever it is. Whatever it is, whatever makes up your life. Are you willing to set that on the table before Christ and say, you are really my Lord and you can have this. I will only take back what you say take back. And if there's something that is obviously getting in my way, of serving you, of serving others, if I'm spending too much of my time on, on a hobby and not serving you and it's serving myself, then I want you to take that away or I want you to redeem it and change it into a hobby that, that serves you. As Christians, we don't look at things the same way as everyone else. We ask different questions because our Lord is Christ and not our life. Francis Chan has a haunting quote. And, and I've thought about this quote several times, and, and it says this, Our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. We've been given one life to live, and we've been given the opportunity to live an abundant life in Christ. And the choices that we make all flow ebb and flow with, with that one thing. Are we going to live it ourselves? Or are we going to um, we going to live it through Christ? You know, you, uh, you've been put in to run the race by your coach. And the question is, are you going to run it to win? Or are you going to run it and, and just run it because you're there? Are you going to fight the good fight and be Christ's hands and feet? And, and the point is, in all this, you don't have to. If you're going to do it, you, ha- you should want to. And if you don't want to, then you need to go back to Christ and say, something's up with my heart. Something's, something's, something's amiss. And I, I want to come back to you, and I want to refocus with you, and I want you to be number one in my life. Because you know the Olympic athlete who lasts is the one, uh, who, the one who endures is the one who embraces the honor, who embraces the glory, and is willing to pay the price to make it happen. We have been saved from an eternity in hell. And that's what we deserve. And if, if any pride is seeped into you saying, I don't deserve that, I'm, I'm a good person, you're even in more danger than you realize. Because we come to Christ as beggars, And he saves us and redeems us and restores us and regenerates us and makes us new so that we can share the gospel, so that we can take it out. I want to encourage you this morning to run to win. Hebrews 12, which we'll we'll study soon, says, Throw off all that entangles you and run the race focused on Christ. 
Make him your focus. Make him your center. And take a look around at your life and reevaluate what's important and what Christ is calling you to do. And I want to encourage you to run for an eternal prize that cannot fade away. Don't settle for anything less than that victory that we have in Jesus Christ. We're going to stand and sing that song, Victory in Jesus. And I just want to challenge you. Let him have some say. Sometimes we get caught up in one direction. Sometimes we get caught up in the life that we live. It's something that he's been challenging me with. And sometimes I get caught up in doing all the good things that I do for him. You know, I, 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 sometimes I get so arrogant in the way that I approach my life in Christ. And I, I just do these things that I'm assuming is what he wants. But I don't set them before him. And I don't look around. And I soon I find myself, I look at my life and I realize that I'm neglecting and even disobeying him. And even, even arrogantly, you know, just prideful with him. I want to encourage you, run the race and set it before him. Let's stand and sing.